This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work. I'm Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I am thrilled to bring you another installment of our special series done in collaboration with Reframe, a partnership between the Sundance Institute and WIF Los Angeles. Reframe Voices of Change is a collection of interviews with organizational leaders, activists, artists, and directors, and considers the essential relationship between who our media makers are and the content we consume every day. We hope you'll join us in celebrating the bravery, creativity, and tenacity of these women, and that it will inspire you to raise up your voice in the process. Our guests today are the dictionary definition of grown-ass women. First, we'll hear from award-winning writer, director, producer, and hip-hop comedian, Rada Blank. If you have questions or you'd like to share your thoughts, we'd love to hear them. So please email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or follow us on Twitter. I'm at Laura Zarrow, and you can get us at SXM Business Radio. Rada Blank is the creative force behind the 40-year-old version, winner of the 2020 U.S. Dramatic Directing Award at Sundance, which premieres on Netflix tomorrow. The film makes her a member of the rare club of hyphenated artists in Hollywood, usually white men, who write, act, direct, and produce. A role model for storytellers and emerging leaders alike, she sat down with us at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City to talk about all of it, starting, of course, with the film itself. The 40-year-old version is a comedy in black and white about a struggling playwright who decides to salvage her voice as an artist by becoming a rapper at age 40. Okay, so a little autobiography in there? A lot of biography. (laughs) I mean, I'm playing a heightened version of myself, and, um, you know, some of the characters are... Uh, an amalgam of other people that I've met over the years, but I'm pretty much playing myself. And it was, and it was uh, the crisis in the story is something that I've had to confront, like dealing with the loss of my mother and contemplating my life as an artist and my survival and whether or not I would die in obscurity as an artist. I mean, these are things I've had to confront myself. So yeah. I think they're things we all have to confront as we go through our lives. Yeah, and especially an interesting that you anchor it at forty, which. You know, I'm a little past 40, okay. so that seems young and you full of gray. You look moisturized. Well, thank you. I'm trying. <laughs> but what is it about 40 that was important in this as a transition point in life? Um, I think 40, there's no turning back from adulthood at that age. <laughs> you know, 30, true. you can still kind of be like, I'm young and spicy. And yes, you can be young and spicy at 40, but 40 just to me represents like adulthood. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain responsibilities in your life now. Um, you generally are not living with eight of the roommates at 40. I mean, you can if you want to. Um, I personally not my do choice, that. right? Yeah. You know, but but it also I think the idea is that when you turn 40, you've arrived at adulthood. You know who you are, and you know what you want to do, what you want to be, and that was not the case for me. Um, I lost my mom two months after I turned 40 and I realized how much more mothering I needed as an adult woman, like just needing someone to kind of walk me through this phase of my life. And so um, also, like, you know, speaking to social commentary about like, you know, if you're 40 and single, you know, that maybe you should be put out to pasture. (laughs) And sometimes that's the energy that you get, like, you know, that 
you have you're over the hill or you've passed your prime and i think the uh the journey of this character is that she turns 40 and she makes all these new discoveries about herself and so you know if i had a byline for the film i'd say like you don't age out of your passion mm-hmm. you know and this is a person who's kind of rediscovering her passion and you know there's a potential for love and all these other things that she maybe thought had passed her by because she'd reached 40. You know? I also think there's something about when we really become grown-ups this way that we become more potent forces mm-hmm. and can go and start to leverage that in the world. Yeah. You've been doing that in multiple parts of your career and you mm-hmm. also came to Sundance, not just to premiere the film, but you developed the film through Sundance. Yes, through the labs. Tell me about what, why you did that. Was how And the, the combination of how much of it was about being in a place where original filmmaking could be incubated and how much of it was about finding a place where your voice could be heard, developed, respected yeah. and, and come out better, but not adulterated. Right. Um, it's, it's all of those things. I mean, like you, you have to be crazy to get accepted into a lab and decide, Oh, I'm not going to go. I mean, like, <laughs> I think my getting into the lab has so much to do with me being here at this particular point, because, you know, they're smart. They want to, you know, tap into artists who look like they, there's a trajectory in terms of career and people who also take filmmaking very seriously, because when you go to the director's lab, you're there for like 30 straight days. Yeah, it's you not know? camp. No, not at all. And you're working every day. You are rehearsing in the day and shooting at night. And so in the afternoon, so it's, it's vigorous, it's intense. And so when you come through that kind of, um, uh, uh, machine, so to speak, like you're ready to be set, you know, off on your way. And I think the industry is smart to kind of keep tabs and to watch who comes out of the, the labs. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a place where I developed fellowship and community with my, you know, um, fellow filmmakers who were in the program. And I also got, I got to find out what my film is and what it wasn't. You know, like I shot scenes, you get to shoot scenes from your film. And this one particular scene was shot so well and was so funny, but it wasn't my movie. And I just felt so fortunate to get that lesson, to sit there and go, oh, you know what? We did these things, we utilized these tools. I went for this particular tone, but that's not the movie I wanna make. And um, so it's a real gift to come through. But like, also it's a gift to get that stamp of approval from this institute, you know, that some of the m- most uh, amazing filmmakers have come out of. So it, it's been a, real, a, a blessing, you know, to kind of come down that pipeline and then end up here at the festival. So it sounds like it was both a place for you to really do the hard work oh, yeah. of finding the focus for the film, but also um, being able to develop things at a very high level and then get critical feedback. Absolutely, my, my advisors were just brilliant, like in being honest. And also like it gave me a chance to defend my film too, because you know, some of these folks have like been working in the industry for decades, also they're award-winning. And one or two of them were like, I don't know if you should shoot this on black and white film. And it really challenged me. Like I really had to question like what I felt my film was. And so it was a, it was a great way to incubate the film, um, but also, again, develop relationships with some of those advisors I keep in touch with. Um, Clark Johnson was one of them. And when I had a rough cut, I made sure to invite him to watch it. And he just gave me wonderful notes that um, really helped me to kind of uh, shape and fine tune the movie. Picking up on something you mentioned and in even introducing the film, you know, I'm 40, we're adults. 
And yet I, I still call my mom in a time of crisis. You know, when are we in the driver's seat? When do we need support? Right. How did you go from being open to criticism on the receiving end of um, what was available to you at Sundance to shifting into the leadership role that it takes to take a vision, make it real and, you know, make this whole movie happen? Yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting. I actually think the best leaders are the people who listen and are open. Like I remember um, I used to write for a show called The Get Down and Baz Luhrmann was, you know, the leader of that uh, ship. And he talks about, um, you know, one day talking about Romeo and Juliet as he was making the film, there was a young man in his office painting his walls who was like 19 years old or something like that. And, you know, Baz is talking with his colleagues about Shakespeare and the guy chimes in. Turns out he's a scholar on Shakespeare. And um, Baz turned around and was like, mm, okay, that's an interesting idea. And I think what that taught me is like, you're never too um, experienced or professional to get a note from somebody. And so I didn't feel like I had to um, compromise my leadership um, you know, when receiving notes from these much more decorated and storied uh, filmmakers, you know, um, I think for me, I've never had a child and I don't want to at all, you know, dismiss, uh, insult anyone who's had children, but I feel like I was the mama bear and this was my cub and, you know, I had to protect it at all costs, no matter who gave me the note, no matter how many Oscars were sitting <laughs> on their shelf, I really had to think about my cub and what was best for it. And there were many times when, I didn't know what was best, but I knew, you know, what wasn't, what wouldn't work for it. So I just tried to remain open and see myself as the defender and protector of the vision. And that's even for myself, to protect it from myself, which, you know, I had doubts, I had fears about being in my own film. And the film would, over time, tell me what it needed. How did you learn to hear that in yourself how young were you was did it come over time was there a project because I think it's a hard thing for any author yeah and it's particularly hard for women yeah and especially if we don't see examples of other role models so yeah. did you have great role models how did you get I did to I mean voice? I was raised I was raised by artists my mom was a painter my father was a jazz musician and it was my mother who planted the seed of storytelling in me very early on I was about eight years old and I had written this story about this black family um, who lived on planet Earth and they were sick of the isms, the racism, the pollution and the sexism. And so they erect this spaceship and they fly off to a distant planet where there's no other you know, uh, human life and they're happy and they love it. And then after a while, they just get bored. <laughs> and so that ship that they had dismantled, they put it back together and they fly back to Earth because they're like, they'd rather take you know, the isms than not be in company with other human beings. And I read that to my mom and she kind of had tears in her eyes. And at first I was like, what? I didn't understand her reaction. And her first thing was, oh my God, you see black people in the future. That was the first <laughs> thing that she said. And then the second thing she said is, you're gonna be a great writer one day. And I, I still didn't quite understand what that meant because I didn't know that people could pursue this professionally. But she planted that seed and then just different things over the years kind of watered the seed. And, you know, whether it was doing performance, doing stand-up comedy, or even being in a classroom as a teacher, I feel like I was learning this lesson that, oh, 
I'm a storyteller and I actually have a way with words. They're effective. They are, you know, there's a way to engage. You know, I was the kind of teacher who would go into the quote unquote at risk classrooms. And at the end, we're all laughing. You know, the girl who's like, what we doing? Why are we doing this? By the end of the class, she's like, you got one already? We're not doing this again? You know, so I realized that there was something in me um, that I don't know that it was um, a skill. It, sometimes it felt like I was gifted this ability to communicate. And so it has transformed and manifested in different forms. But I always knew I had this thing and it was my job to protect it, even against myself, if that makes sense. It sounds sense. like you also had something else that I attribute to teachers, a way that you find the love for every student and you find a way to connect with them. Yeah, I feel like I became a better teacher when I actually realized that I'm not there to teach them anything. I'm there to be a mirror so that they can see themselves, you know, and take and become their own leaders. Like there's a line in the movie where I say, okay, all right, you guys, you're laughing, but it's your project. It'll be whatever you put into it. And that is how I've always approached it. It's like, I'm not, I don't even like calling myself the teacher. I just say I'm here to kind of lead us in a direction, but it's the direction that you want to go in. In my very early twenties, when I started teaching, like I, <laughs> I really caught, walked in there thinking I was going to save lives. And, and ooh, I learned very fast that that was not my role. Um, but I feel like as I got older, it was my job to be in service of their voice, you know, and that's what I think made me effective after many years of failing at it, you know, is just to be a vessel so that, um, or a mirror to reflect their own power uh, in telling stories and telling their own stories, you know. Well, you're clearly carrying the message from your mom that you have the power and that mm. you are telling important stories. But it also sounds like that some of what you also bring to your world as a writer and a director and a producer now. Yeah. How are you seeing especially in the last few years in Hollywood, since hashtag me too, but that's, I want to put that out there as a, an important moment, but also as um, a visible prong in a wheel of movements that yeah. are trying to make a more inclusive Hollywood, sure. tell more inclusive stories. Mm -hmm. How are, do you, how does that speak to you? How yeah. is that connecting for you? Because it seems like you've been on a trajectory of trying to tell your stories for a long time that are deeply compassionate and humane. Yeah, I mean, well, just in the making of this film, you know, I've been trying to make it for a couple of years. And Lena Waite, who is one of my dynamic producers, she and I have been friends for many years. And, you know, I've been pounding the pavement, trying to get money for the film for years. And all it took was Lena saying, let me help you make your film. And then me saying yes to that. So I think having people who, you know, for her and Jordan Fudge and Bishi uh, Rajani, who runs uh, Hillman Grad, you know, it was a no-brainer to work with me. With other people, I think I had, I was using my time to convince them that they should take a, a chance on me. And so, you know, just in terms of like, when there are more diverse people at the gates, um, they will let in folks, more folks who mm -hmm. look like them, and they will make sure that the storytelling reflects, you know, who they are. And so that, you know, I, I don't know if that's, me more me too more about inclusion than me too but I feel like you know it's just important that we continue to diversify the people at the top because mm -hmm. they ultimately will you know help create a voice for those who 
have been overlooked for so long. And it's not to say that there weren't people who weren't queer or on the margins or of color who, you know, um, there were plenty of people who wanted to help me make this project. I just think it took a lot more convincing with them. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, these people of color who were queer and on the margins were like, no big deal, let's do it. You know, so I feel like, um, you know, just in terms of inclusivity, like my, the making of my project kind of speaks to why that's so important. And just in terms of me too, how it impacts the project, you know, is um, for the first time ever, like we have intimacy coaches on set. And just the idea that when, when two characters or two actors are coming together in a scene, there is this conversation about what feels safe for all parties involved regardless of the gender or how people define themselves. And I really feel like Me Too has helped to create that, you know, so that we can have safer work environments. People feel safe, people feel seen, people feel heard. And, you know, the idea of employing a uh, intimacy coach actually wasn't even for me. It was for one of my male co-stars. I just wanted everyone to feel comfortable. We didn't ultimately use an intimacy coach, but it was part of the conversation and like, you know, this is just what we do now and this is what we should do to ensure that there's like a safe environment. Maybe the thing that connects them is that fundamentally it's about how do we create respectful, inclusive spaces yes. where we really connect with each other right? and we're not, we don't have to be frightened, we don't mm. have to be vulnerable and we can get right to it, right. but in ways that honor each, each other's voices, goals and boundaries. Right. So some of this is obviously a byproduct of the way that the world is changing. But some mm -hmm. of this, as you noted, you wanted for the actor on your set. Yes. Talk to me about how you create the culture on your set. Well, I think, I think it's as simple as who you hire. You know, when I look at my department heads, it's a lot of women. Um, there are a lot of queer folks. There are a lot of people of color. I was really like just walking on the set and looking around and just seeing how diverse and inclusive the set was. It really made me feel good. I did not hire every single person there, but I did hire the department heads. And then they hired all of those diverse and amazing people to work on our set. And so, you know, like, I just think people work stronger and when they feel like they're being seen and they're being valued and, you know, it seems like, oh, it's just a simple thing of hiring somebody who is, who represents like a more inclusive crew, but it really does impact like a sense of camaraderie. And, you know, um, I don't know. I just feel like it, it, it can also become a teachable moment because it was a moment where um, some uh, union folks were on set. And these are two older white men and, you know, a lot of times when the folks come on set, they're there for the job. They're not, they don't care who's making they're the film. They're not invested in They it. are, you know, here to make a film. And we were all online. Uh, we were all online, like the chow line, getting food. And, you know, they were like, come on, like, hurry up, girl, hurry up, hurry up. And there was just a moment when I walked off the line and then walked over to the director's chair and their faces were a little cracked in that moment. Like they were not expecting to see me at the helm, but I feel like 
they need to oh, and yeah. they should. You know, they, they should be working in an environment that is diverse, where the person behind the camera doesn't necessarily look like them, and that they are being encouraged um, to treat that person with the same amount of respect that you would a Chris Nolan or somebody else. You know what I mean? So I feel like it was it was very affirming, and then there were these like little teachable moments where I think we got to um, encourage you know a sense of diversity and inclusivity as people move forward in their jobs and they hire folks. You know that's important that it just doesn't happen on the set; that it happens moving forward. That was Rada Blank, writer, producer, director of The 40-Year-Old Version, which premieres on Netflix tomorrow and is part of our special series, Reframe, Voices of Change. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.